Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Kate Andrews. Now, James, yesterday we saw the text exchange between Lord Brownlow and the Prime Minister, those texts that Lord Guite, the, the, the Standards Commissioner, did not see. But is that the end of the story? Because today it does seem to still be dominating headlines. I don't think it is the end of the story because in that WhatsApp exchange, there's a reference to a kind of Great Exhibition 2, which was an idea that Lord Brownlow was associated with. And there are now questions about whether, you know, what Lord Brownlow idea was being taken more seriously because of his role in the Prime Minister's flat redecoration. So I don't, I don't think this issue has gone away. I think Downing Street need to kind of hope that they'd be able to kind of clear the decks in the new year but they'd have got all the the flat stuff the party stuff all that stuff done and dusted and they could kind of start the new year afresh i i think this is a reminder that this is going to kind of continue to dog them as an issue and i also think that you know there now is this other question which is you know we know from the letters exchanged that Lord Guyton and Boris Johnson are going to meet to discuss the role of the independent advisor and the powers that they have. I think it would be very hard for Lord Guyton, considering how critical he is of the government machine for not handing him various things uh, and not alerting him to various things. I think it would be very hard for him not to demand, at the very least, that he is given the right to start an investigation himself. At the moment, he can only conduct an investigation if the Prime Minister asks him to. So I think you are going to end up with Lord Guyton having to be given more powers to, to, to maintain the credibility of the role and his own. Uh, and so I think, I think this story hasn't gone away. And, and it is just a distraction. And I think it's also a particularly annoying distraction for the government at this time, because you know, at a time when people are beginning to worry about their own living standards being squeezed, just the reminder of how much was spent on this and how the Prime Minister tried to get other people to pay for it, 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 it is particularly jarring. Kate, is the problem with this government is that it's just getting this reputation for being a bit sleazy. Like the BBC today ran an article about the, at least a dozen sleaze scandals that have happened in this government already, some of them involving the Prime Minister. So you just can't shake off that reputation. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Cindy, because obviously this has been following Boris Johnson for a long time, the story about the redecoration of his flat. And it, it just feeds into this narrative that Boris somewhat had before, but I think is getting worse, that, you know, he's a little bit too relaxed with his version of things. It's not to say that he's even delayed deliberately trying to mislead people but you know that he doesn't take this stuff seriously enough he doesn't take the rules seriously enough and obviously last month and last month of 2021 in December that was made significantly worse by reports of a Downing Street party and you know even before that Laura Prendergast reported that they had the year before possibly had more people over for Christmas than they say they were they always say they're following the rules right but they're not totally upfront about what happened mm. and I, I think it just it does really feed into this narrative that dare I say it there's one rule for them and another rule for other people but in the case of the flat redecoration just that there's one way of living for them and I don't think anybody expects the prime minister to have their day-to-day look exactly like the rest of us do but this you know it really is not as James says it's it's really not going to go down well with people when they're seriously thinking about the cost of their energy bills over the next few months um, how much it costs to buy food what supplies are in shortage to be reminded frequently that the prime minister was trying to figure out how to put extremely expensive wallpaper 
all around his flat, especially at a time when we had a national crisis on our hands. Now, James, on that cost of living crisis, obviously, is now really, really coming to a head with various factors all coming together in this kind of very unholy mix. Today's papers are saying that the over 65s especially will be particularly hard hit. And what, what do you make of how the government can handle this and how important it is for them to get this wrong right? So I think the first thing to say is there's actually a limit to what the government can do. You know, it doesn't control interest rate policy, the Bank of England does. And I think you can say that the Bank of England has consistently underestimated how high inflation was going to go and how long it was going to last. And once the inflationary genie is out of the bottle, it's very hard to put it back in to, to mix metaphors. The second problem the government has is, despite what it has tried to do, it can't control prices. So it has imposed this energy price cap. And yes, in the very short term, that has protected consumers. But it's also led to lots of energy companies going bust. And if you aren't going to end up with even more of them going bust, the energy price cap is going to have to rise. And the regulator is expected in February to approve a a big rise in it. You know, some people in in Whitehall think that that rise could be 80%. And then people's bills from April are going to be much, much higher. So the question then becomes, what can the government do? Labour and lots of Tory backbenchers are saying, scrap that on fuel, um, that 5% charge. Now, I am slightly surprised that Boris Johnson hasn't jumped at this idea because politically it would enable him to say, I'm helping with the cost of living and this is something we can only do because we have left the EU. But I don't think it's actually great policy because the people with the largest heating bills tend to be the people who live in the biggest houses. So they would be the biggest cash winners from this policy. I mean, the government's probably going to go down the road of more targeted support. But I mean, the other problem here is that, you know, do you remember the Gordon Brown 75p increase in the state pension that outraged everyone? The other problem that you've got here is people's fuel bills are going up by so much, but taking 5% off it is not going to feel like the government is hugely helping. And I mean, this is one of the problems you've got is this is going to be such a big increase in how much people are having to spend on energy, that I'm not sure how much political credit the government would get for even a 5% reduction. And the other problem you've got is, you know, energy policy for 20 years has been a series of bad decisions with other bad decisions taken to try and offset the effects of the bad decision. And, you know, none of the, none of the necessary fixes to our energy policy problems deliver results quickly. So I I mean, that is the biggest problem for the government is that there are real limits to what they can do. But, you know, George Osborne always used to argue when Ed Miliband was trying to make the cost of living the preeminent political issue. But the way the Tories win on cost of living is to say, we'll let you keep more of your money. And I think that is why it is politically imperative for the Tories that they can cut taxes before the next election. They can say, look, yes, we did raise national insurance to try and deal with the NHS backlog and social care and and COVID. But we are now back to being a tax cutting party. And if you vote for us, we will let you keep more of your money than the Labour Party will. If they can't say that by the time of the next election, if they haven't cut taxes by then, then I think they are in real trouble. But as Kate said before Christmas, Omicron and the, the slow economic slowdown that that is causing makes it more difficult for them to cut taxes before the next election because it is whistling away at the war chest that they were trying to accumulate. Kate, this is obviously a major challenge for Rishi Sunak because he's now going from spending money on everything and everyone to, you know, this major fiscally conservative challenge. Well, the papers have been reporting on the opposition to Jacob Rees-Mogg's intervention earlier this week about national insurance is that 
Rishi Sunak was actually the person who's opposing it. So how will the Chancellor handle this situation? Because he's clearly, you know, as James says, he should be cutting some taxes. So I think it's an issue of a new year and old fights surfacing anyway, because yes, it, it sounds like from the reports we've had that Rishi Sunak was the one pushing back on Jacob Rees-Mogg. But to be very clear, this is not a Chancellor who is very comfortable with the idea of tax rises. I mean, he has said he's made a personal pledge to the Tory backbenchers, that for every marginal pound he gets now, he wants to put it towards cutting taxes. But the point that he was trying to make, I think, in cabinet, is that this isn't a matter of taxing people or not taxing people. It's a matter of finding the money that the prime minister wants to spend on huge programs like social care and giving more money to the NHS. It's thought that this new levy is going to raise roughly 12 billion pounds. And and Sunak's point is, okay, well, if you don't want the levy, Rees-Mogg or anybody else, what are you going to tax instead to raise that money? Or what are you going to cut? Now, I think it's very likely that if you really went around the cabinet table and, and got their personal preferences on this, a lot of people might say, well, you know, there are things we can scale back. There are programs we can cut. But that is not to the prime minister's liking. Under no circumstances does he want to be labeled as the prime minister who brought in anything looking like austerity. So the real debate here isn't whether or not we want higher or lower taxes. It's if you're going to have these spending programs, do you want the national insurance levy to pay for it? Do you want something else to pay for it? Or do you want to cut something? Because Rishi Sunak wants to put the magic money tree to bed after having borrowed hundreds of billions of pounds. And to James's point about what the government can really control, it's Sunak who said for well over a year now, going back to his March budget last year and even before that, that if inflation gets out of control, if interest rates rise, and that's in the control of the Bank of England, the government is simply going to have to respond to that by finding the money, the hugely increased amounts of money, to service the debt. And, And he's known that for a long time. He's been trying to hedge against it, but he's been warning, look, guys, if this gets out of control, there's only so much we can do. And I think we're starting to see the reality of this. You know, the government acted for basically two years as if we weren't going to have to pay for COVID. Well, one might argue that the supply shortages, the rising energy bills, all of this is paying for COVID. It's going to be a painful process, bouncing back from shutting down the world's economy. And there are things the government can do to, as James says, slightly lighten the burden. But the truth is, this is going to be a really tough time. Uh, And it's not one that a conservative government especially wants to be overseeing when taxes and the cost of living are both rising. James and Kate, thanks very much for joining the podcast. And thank you for listening. And do join us again for our Saturday episode tomorrow.